First Peter chapter two, verses four through eight. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant and infallible word. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. Let's pray. Now, Father, this is a humbling passage of Scripture, and it's, it's a key passage in First Peter, in his letter to the church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear it, to listen to it. With, and we ask that your Spirit would impart to us wisdom and conviction and help us where we have sinned to repent of our sins and where we have been brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. Give us joy and cause us to rejoice. And where, Lord, you have shown us it is necessary that we obey, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to Renew our covenant to be yours and to obey you, to labor toward that end. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, when I went to seminary, I was working in, in, in neighborhoods and in a state where there was 15,000 feet of clay and people built their homes and businesses and highways on that 15,000 feet of clay. It was not an unusual thing at all. In fact, I, I assumed it, and, and I always saw it when you went into a million-dollar home, uh, it, whether the least expensive or to the most expensive home, the, a million-dollar home even itself, there would be cracks in the walls. There would be cracks everywhere. There would be cracks running from floor to ceiling, and that was because of the shifting soil and the clay of that soil. It was called Yazoo Clay, and that was the county in which we lived and worked, Yazoo County. It was an extraordinary thing, and, and I couldn't help but think of New England and how things are here in Massachusetts, especially in our own experience. We dig down, we pull up the soils, and, and we get to bedrock. We try to get down to rocky soil very quickly, and here in, in, in Massachusetts, you will. You don't need to dig very far before you get into sand, and then after that, very quickly, you get into bedrock or rock. And if you went deep enough, you would you would come to the rock shelf, and there's nothing there but rock, bedrock. So when you build a house up here in New England, you can build a you can build a a a, 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 a cellar, and in that cellar, you don't have to have the fear that that. This Yazoo clay will break up your cellar and cause it to leak. I, I saw, I think, during my time in Mississippi, maybe two different root cellars. Uh, and in both instances, those root cellars were filled with water. Well, we don't need to look very far. And, and maybe we even think of our own homes and the, and the validity of the foundation and, uh, that, that we have for our own homes and the houses that we live in, and we ask, well, what do the foundations look like? Maybe you've gone down into the cellar and something has caused you to fear. You've seen a crack, or maybe there's a leak, and maybe there's water pouring in. Even, even the, It's extraordinary to me that even cement cellars with rebar in the walls, that they can be broken, they can be cracked by the power of freezing water and of, of rain seeping into the soil, and the movement of that soil can eventually break apart any foundation. So it's very, very important that foundations are prepared for life in the soil for many decades to come. Well, a good foundation is very much before us in the passage here this morning, a good foundation. And it's in this passage, there's 
language that describes our union with Jesus Christ and our union with one another. You wonder what life in the church looks like. You wonder what life within the community of God's people feels like. What we owe to one another and what that life should be. These four verses remind us of what building on a good foundation looks like and what what it looks like for us to be built on that foundation here within the church. And the overall impact of this passage, I think, is to drive home the centrality of Jesus Christ to the Christian life and life within the community in the extension of our Christian life here in the church. He is, I don't know if you know it yet, and maybe you haven't come to this conviction yet, but he is the linchpin. Jesus Christ is the foundation stone. He is the deciding factor in the regard to our our relationship with God. And he always will be. Peter uses very colorful imagery here in this passage. He's, He's talked about newborn babies craving milk. Not speaking about immaturity as believers, but rather saying that that we ought to be to have such an appetite for God, such a craving for the Word, that we are like newborn babies craving milk. We are, in this passage, he uses a different illustration to illustrate new believers, and believers who are within the community of God's people. And in this respect, we are like a building. We are like a building. We are living stones. He himself being the, the foundation stone. And he's he's told these believers in the earlier section of this chapter, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So the Apostle Peter has been speaking to people marginalized within their own culture. These are Christian people who have been made to feel like aliens in the world in which they live. And they are alien because they have taken up a new citizenship in the kingdom of God. Uh, you and I have experienced what that feels like. We have we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've tasted of the Lord. We've seen that He is good. We, 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 are, we have purified our souls by beginning to obey and, and to walk in obedience in the Lord. And we have taken up the Word, and the Word has had its good impact on our soul. And as we've done that, we've experienced the derision of the world, in some cases more strong than others. But but we've all experienced it in some sense, whether or not we've gone to our family and said, I've become a believer. I, I believe in Jesus Christ and is my salvation. I have new life in Jesus Christ and all, I've pinned all my future hopes on Christ and his return and of my going to live with him for all eternity and on his righteousness counted and imputed to me. And how did they respond? If they were very, very kind, well, that's good for you. It's absolute nonsense. Believe it if you will, but don't impose that on me. Maybe you've experienced worse than that. Maybe your family has abandoned you because of that. Maybe they hold you in derision because of your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe secretly they think you're just a little bit nuts, a little crazy, a little foolish. You go to church on Sundays. Why do you do that? We only get so many days off per week. Are you kidding me? You give a portion of your of your income to God? Yes, in all these ways. And and in, in those ways and, and in more, more and more isolated as believers in our workplaces, uh, we can never step back and say, well, you're asking me to, 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 to give my assent to, my affirmation of ungodly, wicked, sinful things and lifestyles which oppose my very values? Yes, again and again and again. You think of the hockey player, uh, I forget his first name, but uh, Reamer. Uh, he's a goalie in the NHL, and he came out this last week and said he couldn't wear a a, a uniform that celebrated Pride Week uh, or Pride Month for uh, his NHL hockey team. And he said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian, I can't celebrate that which is contrary to God. I can't say this is good and affirm that which God opposes. And I, I, I celebrate such individuals who come out and say, I'm, I'm a Christian. I can't celebrate what Christ And God's word denigrates. I can't rejoice over what is sin. 
I can't say it is a good thing. I can't celebrate sin. How can I do anything but weep over the confusion of our world that celebrates the contrary purpose for which God created us, male and female? How can I celebrate the confusion over gender? How can we celebrate as Christians the the idea that one can love in a way that is opposed to God, when in reality it's not love, it's, it's lust? God opposes such things. So you've taken up this call to live for the Lord in the world, to not 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 browbeat people, not 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 act as morally superior to others, nor judge them, but rather to live consciously as a Christian in, in our world. Loving God, loving your fellow man, but speaking the truth in love, being honest about who we are, seeking to be a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ to an unbelieving and dark world. We have been sanctified and sprinkled with his blood, sanctified in the work of the Spirit, and yet they are aliens scattered throughout the world. And so Peter speaks to such people. He speaks to all of us who are marginalized, feeling that we are outside of the culture and have no real place in our culture. There are moments when our country loves to talk about their faith in Christ or their faith and belief in God, and usually that concerns Uh, Political seasons, there's an appeal to Christians. They want the evangelical uh, vote. So they they talk about their childhood faith, the faith spoken of about their around their kitchen table. And yet, when it comes time to actually legislate, they legislate things which are absolutely contrary and opposed to the church and the priorities that we ought to have as Christian people. So people, Peter is speaking to this persecuted, these persecuted people. Individuals rejected by men, labeled aliens in our passage, rejected by culture, maybe even family, by our nation, by loved ones. And so Peter says, as you live in the world, this is how you ought to live. This is the mindset you ought to have. This is your true identity whether you whether whether the world recognizes it or not and so there's a twofold response uh, there is a a twofold uh, outline that takes form in this passage he says so much it's awfully difficult i i labored over this i must have sat for 2 hours trying to think through a proper illust- a proper outline of this passage it's very very difficult and all i could come away with was two two responses that we observe to Christ. And those two responses are, one, approaching, and two, rejecting. And so we come first uh, to the approaching, those who approach Christ. And he says this right in verse 4, and coming to him, more literally, and approaching him, coming to him as as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. How have you come to Christ? Well, when you believed in Christ. When you believed in Him. When you were washed in the Holy Spirit and washed in the blood, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When God elected you under everlasting salvation. You come to Christ when you hear the Word and you the Word causes you to respond to that and you believe savingly in Christ Jesus. Peter has just spoken of what that was in chapter in verse chapter 2 verse 2 as newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the lord you've tasted of the kindness of the lord you've been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works lest any should boast and this is what you have believed and you've come to him You've believed in him. Verse 7 speaks of this. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And then in the earlier portion of the verse, this precious value then is for you who believe. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. But you've believed. You You see the worth and the value of believing in Jesus Christ. 
And you've come to him. It's the act of the soul by which I, with all my weakness and sin, cast myself on Jesus Christ. Have, have you come become convinced of that reality? That you are weak and weary and in need and empty with, of anything but filled with sin? having no righteousness, filled with corruption, filled with wickedness, filled with inability, with need, with desire for him because the fact that we have made a shipwreck of our lives as human beings, we are fallen in Adam. All his sins are mine, and in him I sinned. I'm born in original sin, and I have committed actual sins, and I sin constantly, day by day, in thought and word and deed. That is the condition of all who come in faith to Jesus Christ, because they're convinced, I have nothing apart from Him. Now, if you say that you've come to Christ, and you believe in Christ, and yet you're holding on to some other thing, something someone has said about you, something that you have been awarded with, something about yourself that is intrinsic to you, you have not believed savingly in Jesus Christ. You're believing a gospel that is all surrounding yourself. But we are to believe a gospel that says, I am weak, I am sin-filled. I can do nothing but cast myself on Jesus Christ. And you, you, you grasp Him and you hold Him fast to your heart. You, he binds you up with His strength and righteousness we come to Jesus because it is, a, it is a movement of ourselves away from all this idea of Christian prosperity and of progress, and we move ourselves toward Jesus Christ, who is all that our soul needs. It is a continuous act, not just a one-time thing, and coming to him a present, ongoing, active participle, one that is an, has an ongoing sense of without ending. I, I come to Jesus continually. Do you? Do I? Do we daily come to Jesus Christ? I, I find myself in constant need of this. Yes, I've believed the gospel. Yes, I've been saved by grace through faith. Yes, I'm trusting in Christ alone. But every single day I must come to Jesus and remind myself of, who in, of Him in whom I believe. I remind myself of my sinful human condition because I begin to think pridefully about that condition. I begin to assume that because I've done the right things, I've gone through the right motions, that I have a good standing with God. I need that constant rebuke to my pride. I need that constant help that I might not sin against God. It's a continuous act by which we continue in an honest effort to keep our wayward thoughts true to Him, near to Him always, bringing every thought in submission to Him, regulating our affections, tearing away our affections for the world and for money and stuff and garbage and for the love of other persons, and reminding myself all that I need, all that I want is to be loved by God. And he has loved me and given himself for me. We must always become to him, bowing our stubborn and self-regulating wills beneath his own always taking up our residence in our true home in Christ, in his union with us. Always reminding myself, I own a home on Spencer Street. I, I live in Springfield. I have children and grandchildren. I have relationships with all myriads of people. But the most important thing in my life is that I am in union with Jesus Christ. That I am his that I know who is my Lord and Savior, that I belong to Him. I need to be reminded constantly, and so I am when I come to Him, that I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am not free to live as I please. I am not free to do what I want and to live a life of licentiousness and lawlessness. I am obligated to be His. More than this, I'm obligated to take up life within the community of Christ. I'm obligated to come and take up my part in the body of Christ. 
The secret of our daily Christian life is wrapped up in that one word, coming, or appearing, or more little approaching. Do we do this? Do I approach the Lord each day? Do I come to the Lord each day? Do I make certain that I bring my soul, my, my heart, my head, not just go through the rote of reading a portion of Scripture or having it read to me as I'm driving, but do I really come to Jesus Christ daily? And I come to Him in worshipful servitude, in adoration and love. Do I come to Jesus? And this is what Peter is calling us to. And coming to Him is to a living stone. We are to draw near to Christ. He's not only the foundation stone, the cornerstone, but He is a living stone. A stone which has life. And, and as we come to Him, as we are built up on Him, we too glean life from Him. This adjective is not used by mere chance, but to show us that Christ is eminently and emphatically the living one, the source of our own life. If you are trying to live life apart from living in union with Christ, you, you have no life in yourself. You do know that, right? You do know that you're dead in your sins and trespasses. You do know that if you're trying to live your life apart from Jesus Christ, Christ has no real lordship in your life, no real presence in your life. You don't come regularly to Him, submitting to Him, honoring Him as the Son, as the Savior, as your Savior, as the living stone upon which you're being built up. Isn't it true then that you have no life? The life that we have only comes through Him. The life I now live, I live through Him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you would live, if you would have everlasting life, if you have an eternal life, if you would be forgiven of your sins, if you would have life with God, you must draw near to Jesus Christ. You must come to Him. You must come to Him. You must cast yourself upon Him. He will either dash you as a rock, which is hard, that destroys all that comes against and seeks to undermine this foundation stone, or He is the one who gives life to those who cling to Him, cast themselves upon Him, and ask for life. He is the living stone. Draw near to Christ. Life from Him will pass into our hearts and minds. That Life will show itself in us by shaping us into the likeness of Him from whom we draw our life. So we come to Him in order to be made more like Him day by day. He's making us into the likeness of Christ because what it says in verse 4 is coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but his choice and precious, we'll return to that thought in a moment, but his choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, some translations say like living stones, that word like is not there in the Greek, there is simply as, or a, or some, as living stones, you also as living stones, in other words, he's saying, because of our identity in Jesus Christ, because of our union with him, because we derive our life from him, we too are living stones, we're not dead, cold, motionless things. We are living stones being built upon the foundation stone who is life itself, Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's using a lot of metaphors here, I know. And maybe it can be confusing. There's not a lot of oratorical elegance here, but there's real world solidity. I don't know about you, but I can understand a rock. I can take in what a rock means and what that, how the importance of a foundation stone is. And he gathers all those symbols and he draws them from ancient sacrificial worship and he applies them all to, to Christian people. And he does that here. He says this in verse 5, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to quote from the Psalms and Isaiah and the pa passages that follow in verses 6 and 7. 
But let's make clear what he's doing here. Peter is saying, you are spiritual stones and you are being built up. Now, in the first four, he says, coming to Jesus. So let's trace the language here. He is saying in verse four, you are the obedient children of God. You are those who are washed and sanctified in the spirit. You've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're cleansed. You're beloved of God, aliens in the world, but beloved of God, the father. And you are obeying the son. And as those who have tasted of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, that he is good, you are being built up. And so the language changes from you must come to Jesus to now you are being built up. Now it's an activity that we have no real role in. Now it's God's sovereign activity. So we have a daily responsibility to come to Him who is the living stone, to glean life from Him, to, 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 to come to Him and be renewed in our, our obligation to be His, to find life in Christ. But, but God is the one who builds us up. And what is He doing? He is building us, building us up into a sacrificial, into uh, uh, spiritual houses, a holy priesthood, for the purpose of making spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Christians individually and corporately, collectively are temples in as much as we are the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. We are priests by virtue of our consecration, our direct access to God, our function of representing God to men and of bringing men to God. We don't need the Levitical priestly system. We don't need the Aaronic priestly system. We most certainly do not need the Roman Catholic priestly system. That's why we do not hold to a pope. We do not go to a priest for confession. We have direct access to the high priest. The great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who stands, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, whoever lives to make intercession. And we, and he'll say it again in verses 8 and 9 next week, we are a holy priesthood. In other words, every believer, this is what's called the priesthood of all believers. Every believer at the time of the Reformation, this was proclaimed as needful because of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. Every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. No man can absolve you of your sins. No one can, in hearing your sin, simply make it wiped away, wipe it away or make it gone. And no one can go and, and make penance for that sin, uttering various phrases, movements of beads, or pilgrimages, or giving of money. No one can take away your sins except the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can't even pay, make payment for it, nor I. The priesthood of all believers. And this is what God is doing. He has taken you as a New Testament believer and he has made all of the ancient old institutions relevant to you as a believer. Such that as you observed in the tabernacle, individuals going in and of priests entering into the holy of holies, into the very direct presence of God, making intercession, offering sacrifices. He says... In Christ, you have the same privilege. In Christ, you can daily, boldly approach the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. You are a holy priesthood, a spiritual house in which God dwells. As we saw in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, uh, there God caused his presence by day and by night in the pillar of fire, the cloud by day, fire at night. He, he, he symbolically represented his presence there in the tabernacle, in the holy of holies. There God dwelt, oh, there between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And there intercession was made, blood was spilt, and God met with his people through his representative. What we observe in that tabernacle and in the temple, as Solomon built the temple and the priesthood continued, sacrifices being made, the Ark of the Covenant brought inside, the Holy of Holies, God meeting with his people, speaking his word 
You and I are that spiritual house. God lives and dwells within your heart. His Holy Spirit now takes up residence permanently within us. And what does He do? He brings to us the spilt blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us pure and He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. God has come to dwell amongst His people. We are priests because we have been consecrated under God's use. We have direct access to Him. And we also are sacrifices in as much as it is our duty to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto God day by day. Read Romans 12. John Calvin says it is a singular honor that God should not only consecrate us as a, a temple to himself in which he dwells and is worshipped, but that he should also make us priests. Think about that, male or female, young or old. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a priest, holy sanctified unto God by virtue of the fact that you have direct access to God through your Savior, Jesus Christ. And because you represent God to the world around you. And because you offer sacrifices of of a life of obedience and of commitment to him and of worship on the Lord's day to him. Not just on the Lord's day, but every day. It is a singular honor that God should not only consecrate us as a temple to himself in which he dwells and is worshipped, but that he should also make us priests. But Peter mentions this double honor in order to stimulate us to more effectually to serve and worship God. Of the spiritual sacrifices, the first is offering of ourselves, of which Paul speaks in Romans 12.1. If we can offer nothing until we offer to him ourselves as a sacrifice, which is done by denying ourselves. And so we deny our our propensity, our sinful propensity to make ourselves the subject of all of our affections, the center of our universe, the motivation for everything. I'll do it because I love myself. We have a sickness of self-love, dear friends. The idea that we must first love ourselves before we can love others is absolute worldly nonsense doesn't make any sense it's contrary to the truth it's drivel it is true that we must experience the love of God before we can truly love anyone else that's true that we must love God first before we can truly love others maybe you're asking this morning how could I how could God possibly accept my sacrifice of myself I'm only sinful in all the best things that I can do and nothing but sinful acts anyway. And all the good that I do is sinfully permeated with sinful motivations and sinful thoughts. And if we aren't convinced of that, we need to grow and mature in our understanding. All of our thoughts, all of our movements, all of our actions are are tainted by our own sinful, selfish motivations. Listen to what the confession says, and it's a helpful word for us as believers because we are often convinced I can do nothing for God that is in any way good. How can God accept the entirety of my life? I want to offer the Lord myself as a sacrifice to him, but when I'm so filled with sin and I struggle with sin and I'm so imperfect and incomplete, how can anything I do be Received of him as good and lovely in his sight. Well, listen to this. We, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have but done our duty and are unprofitable servants. That's exactly what Paul says. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, talking about good works, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and misled with so much weakness and, and imperfection that they can't endure the severity of God's judgment. That is true. And we might despair, but for the next sentence, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him 
Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You're serving God and you're trying, you're striving. You're trying to come to the Lord daily. You find yourself distracted and troubled. You see your life shot through with sin, and you know that all the best things that you do are impure, and surely God would be right to reject it all. And how can I offer myself as a living sacrifice to him at all? Well, because you're in union with Jesus Christ, because you're a living stone built upon the living stone. You belong to him. And by virtue of his incorruptible life, He makes what you offer to him lovely in the sight of God. And the Holy Spirit washes what you offer and washes away what is corrupt and impure and presents what is pure and lovely and good to our God who delights in the sacrifices of his people. Notice the nature of what's being described here, our union with Christ. What is union with Christ? You're living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Christ is the cornerstone. And the purpose of our being built up is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that really what the calling of the church is? As individuals and Christian people to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Whether that is praise or the offering of ourselves in service, worship, a life of principled obedience, all of those things. And so he is the choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, which we'll come to in a moment. I want to exhort all of you this morning about your union with Jesus Christ. When we come to an understanding of our union and our being built up in Christ and the fact that He is the cornerstone, we being built one upon the other in connection with each other and with Christ, we may be better able to perceive the unsearchable grace and goodness of God that such a wretched and sinful person like me or like you can be intimately united with the Son of God, permanently bound up in a foundation upon which God is building his kingdom and his church. Maybe the better question here is, how is it? possible that God can accept in any way my spiritual sacrifices? Better question, as a sinner and as someone who has opposed God much of my life, how is it possible that God would actually place me into that same foundation with his son? Oh, the goodness of God. The goodness of God that even though I have sinned against him, and I am guilty in my sins, and I have a sin nature which is guilty, and I am a fallen being, nonetheless, God has taken and carefully shaped me, and He's still shaping me, but He has put me onto that careful foundation on which Christ has become the cornerstone, the capstone, and He is building us together, and He is making what is pleasing in His sight such a wretched and sinful person like me, united with the Son of God. Such reflection ought to set our hearts aflame with love for God, strengthen our resolve to put our faith in Christ, to approach boldly the throne of grace. Then maybe we might be able to, as Peter has been teaching thus far, receive him, believe in him, trust in him, live in him, love him and hope in him. Scripture speaks of our union with him in this way. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are quickened together with Christ, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. We are complete in him. Of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. 
We have the spirit and the mind of Christ. We bear his image and his likeness. This union has been illustrated in Scripture in various ways. A foundation here in the passage. Also the idea of a tree and its branches. Of being engrafted into Christ. Of members of a body and of of the head. And of portions of that body. A hand and eyes and ears. Ephesians 4. Of a husband and a wife in Ephesians 5. Adam and his descendants. This whole union, union with Christ, is accomplished by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. Know you not that you are are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, is what the Scriptures say. If we are in union with Christ, we have the same, the blessings of His grace. His perfect obedience and accomplishment of the law is our holiness and this renders us perfect with God before God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He makes intercession for me. I am a joint heir with him. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if anyone has the spirit of Christ, he, is, he belongs to him. We have his strength, his fullness we have all received. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. So how can we be disappointed in any way if we are in union with Jesus Christ? We are being built up with him. And this text has something to say of the relation of our communion as saints together. We are one body serving one Lord with one purpose. Peter quotes a number of Old Testament texts here to show God's eternal decree in relation to this relationship. It is an eternal portion of God's goodness that you and I would be identified with Christ. And he says in verse 7, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The word is used twice, not. It's not that he says will not be disappointed, but will not not be disappointed. If you have faith in Christ, if you're in union with Christ, if you've taken up your position in Christ, if you're a living stone built on the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, precious in the sight of God, choice in the sight of God, then you will never be ashamed. But there is, lastly, a second response that we do observe in the text to Jesus Christ. Those who are built into union with him, those who come to him daily, those who are being built up into a spiritual house. But there's also those who disbelieve. That's found in verse 7. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. That's the second time Peter has mentioned the rejection of Christ. And in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Now there are some who read this passage and hear, well, what they do is they, they read the first chapter in Peter and they say, well, Peter doesn't believe in election and predestination. Well, keep reading. Keep reading the rest of chapter 1. And keep reading chapter 2. They stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now this is where we do not take up a prideful stance and say, well, I thank God that I am numbered amongst the elect. Praise be to God. Certainly we should say that, but with great humility. Recognizing that if you've become convinced today of the truth of God's word and and you believe in Jesus Christ and you're in union with him and you're a living stone being built on that foundation stone who is precious and chosen in God's sight and he is the living stone from which we derive life, then that is according to grace, God's mercy alone. This is what we deserved, you see. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Disbelief is not an innocent thing. It is disobedience. If one does not believe, one has disobeyed God. 
If one disobeys God, one does not believe. And for all those who do not believe God, they are disobedient to God, they are rejected by God, and they demonstrate in their lives and in the fact that they refuse to be built on the cornerstone, who is Christ, they have rejected the Lord, they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, this cornerstone, this living stone, then, in fact, God will judge them and remove them. They will stumble and they will fall. Disobedience doesn't take away from Christ the honor that was granted to him by the Father. It simply removes from, from it, it, it prohibits the individual from coming to him who is choice and precious in the sight of God. Well, Psalm 118 verse 22 tells us in prophetic stance that the rejected stone is given over to be the cornerstone. If you're if you're a stonemason today, what do you do? You go to a home, you go to a great big pile of stone. You look for a particular stone that has particular properties. It must be strong. It must not have any faults. It must not have any cracks or fissures. It must be able to withstand a tremendous amount of weight. It must be able to carry all the stones and all the weight of the house itself that would be built upon it. And then it must be carefully shaped. It must be able to be shaped without breaking. And it must be able to be so shaped that it sets the tone for the rest of the entire building. In other words, if you have an oddly, irregularly shaped capstone or or cornerstone, and you place that on the ground, you build all the stones off the rest of it, they will, too will have be misshapen and they will they will be misaligned and the house will not have much standing power. The most important piece is the cornerstone. And it is precious and chosen in the sight of God. And so what we see is this New Testament idea, and even Jesus in Matthew's gospel speaks of this. He echoes Psalm 118.22. And he speaks of the fact that there are those who are the spiritual heads of the household of Israel who have rejected the cornerstone. They've looked at Jesus and they've said, you're not worthy to be the one in who, with whom we are in union in salvation. You're not worthy to be the Messiah. You're not worthy to be our Savior. We don't want to be united to you in faith. In Acts chapter 4, Peter quotes this to the Sanhedrin while he's preaching to them. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, the prophet there says that Christ would be a stumbling block to the Jews and a rock of offense. Jesus is firm and he is stable so that you and I are able to be built on him and he will hold us up. But he is also hard in the sense that he will break and tear in pieces all who resist him. He is a rock of stumbling and a rock of an offense to those who reject God's provision of our Savior. There's no medium between those two things. We either build on Him, our faith is founded upon Him, He is everything to us, or we are dashed in pieces against Him, or one day our hopes in ourselves will be dashed in pieces against Him. Christ is a stumbling block, is He not? Either you believe in Him, and you are saved, and you're built into him, and built on him, and you're brought into vital living union, or he is a rock of judgment and of an offense. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't think it's so fair that God elects some to everlasting salvation, but he rejects others. Well, in their rejection, they receive nothing more and nothing less than what they deserve. Do you understand the text here? They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. God appointed them to this doom. God has made all things. And Romans 9 tells us that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Before either of them were born or any deeds had been accomplished, before they had spoken a word, before they were created in the womb of their mother. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And if you are in Christ today, you you are here because God has loved you 
with an eternal love before you ever did anything. In contradiction to the reality of the mess of the lives that we have made for ourselves. In contradiction to original sin, which is yours and is mine in Adam. If you believe in Christ today, if you have life in Christ, if you've ever tasted of the Lord and you've seen that He is good and you've experienced the kindness of God, it's because of mercy and mercy alone. It's because of God's electing love, such that before this world was ever made, He determined that He would provide a Savior for you, save you from your sins and make you His own, and build you into a spiritual house on the living stone who is Jesus Christ. When people sin, when they are rejected of God, they are they receive in their bodies, they will receive one day what they themselves have earned. The wages of sin is death. When men oppose the word of God, they stumble at Christ. They are disobedient to the word. They are appointed to destruction eternally. In relation Chip, to our understanding of this passage this morning, we ask in conclusion, maybe we're saying, well, how can God expect so much of me that I need to come to him every day? That I need to come to Jesus and be renewed every day in my covenant to him? Yes. How can God expect so much of us? How can we possibly offer ourselves to God as sacrifices? How can I carry out my spiritual work and sacrifice day by day And I have so much else to do. The the correct question here is, how can God give us so much? How can God give me so much? Why has God given me his son? Why has God given to us the choice, precious cornerstone, the living stone to which we are brought in joyful union for all eternity, such that even though this world may take our lives and our bodies and our loved ones, and even though this world may cast us aside as useless and as irrelevant to culture and as irrelevant to all that this world holds dear, how can God give us so much? He has given you so much. He has made you his own. You belong to him You are a living stone by virtue of your union to Jesus Christ. And it is your great privilege to offer to him being built up as a spiritual house and as a holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices day by day appointed unto God. May God be pleased to continue this great work in our soul. Let's pray.